there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. It is amazing to me to see that this many women can come out on a Saturday morning. I can just imagine how elaborate the arrangements had to be in order for you to be here. And if you left lunch at home for your husband and children, it'll probably still be there when you get there, and they'll, they will have gone to McDonald's or something. <laughs> holiness in the 90s. I wonder if you expect holiness in the 90s to be different from holiness in the first century AD or holiness in the 1890s, the gay 90s, or any other set of years since Jesus Christ was here on earth. It's not different. Holiness means loving God and doing what he says. Or as the old hymn puts it, trust and obey. Sometimes people say to me, what in the world do you talk about when you travel around? Usually my answer is in two words, trust and obey. Because if your Christianity doesn't make a difference in the way you live your life, the way you keep your house, the way you respond to your boss at work or to your teachers at school or to your parents at home or to your husband at home or to your neighbors, it's not real Christianity, is it? It's not what we would call holiness. And I would assume that many of you knew what the topic was going to be this morning, and so it encourages me so much to realize that there are women in the 90s, many of them, who honestly and earnestly want to be holy. And you're looking at one who still wants to be. Please don't imagine that I can live up to Cindy's effusive introduction. You're just looking at a woman who does love God and wants to learn to love him more, and a woman who has experienced many setbacks and failures, and I'm still struggling. But isn't it wonderful that we have God's promise? Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. That's a promise. And you can hold him to it. And that's where you have to trust. Trust that he will help you. Don't get discouraged. Don't get frustrated and downhearted. Just do what he says. And he doesn't tell you to do more than one thing at a time, does he? Now, some of you young mothers of Little children, you feel as if you've got 18 things that have to be done instantly. And I know exactly how that feels just by observation. I've never had a large family, but I do have a large family of grandchildren. And whenever I visit there, which is not very far away from here, 
I'm impressed with all that needs to be done and how implacable are the demands that are clamoring for attention, it seems as though every minute of the day. But God has only given you one thing to do, his will. And it is always possible to do his will. So back to this question, is it a different sort of holiness? The answer is no. Does it come naturally? May I see the hands of those of you for whom holiness comes naturally? Is there anybody here that was born with a gentle and quiet spirit? Doesn't come naturally to any of us women, does it? Maybe there's some men that have that, but the Lord commands women to have a gentle and quiet spirit. Is it harder in the 90s to be holy? Now, there's a question that there'd probably be a number of different answers on that one. Some would be yes, and some would be no, and some would be maybe, and some would be I don't know. It's true that we live in a more frantic, it seems, and more convulsive world where there are just too many things clamoring for our attention, too many places to go, too many things to do, too many choices in the grocery store. I was standing in line shortly before Christmas, a long line, waiting to pay for something that I'd bought, and there were not enough sales ladies in the store, and of course, everybody wanted to be at the top of the line. And I just turned to the man behind me and I said, you know, the problem with America is it's too many choices. And we were standing in an area where all I could see in every direction was black dresses. It happened that I had kind of had in the back of my mind, it'd be nice if I had a black dress. I took one look at the 1,649 different styles of black dresses in that one store and I said, forget it. And he said, yeah, you're right, too many choices. I know what you're talking about. My wife works for the grocery store. And there's a whole aisle of cereal, nothing but cereal. And you see these harried, frantic, exhausted mothers with the two-year-old grabbing their skirts and the infant in the cart and the four-year-old racing for the gumball machine. And the mother is saying to the two-year-old, what would you like for breakfast? <laughs> How does he know? He doesn't know what he wants. You have to tell him. So yes, it's a frantic and it's a convulsive world and it's a very busy world and a very distracting world. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's in the Bible. Did you know that? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he will help you. He knows all about the grocery store and the long line in the department store and the laundry that you had to leave at home undone this morning and the dishes that probably won't have gotten done. He knows all about that. And basically, you know, there's... In every one of us, there is what we might call homelessness. There is that deep, unspoken, inexpressible longing for something. 
and most of the world doesn't know what that is. Most of the world thinks that if they had more money and more time and more leisure and could go more places and buy more things, they would have what the world calls happiness. It's a lie. And it's a lie that started way back in the Garden of Eden when Satan came to Eve and suggested that God was wanting to deprive her of the one thing that could make her happy. And she believed Satan. The world's been in a mess ever since. But as St. Augustine said, O God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are empty until they're filled with thee or our hearts are restless until they turn to thee. We have a home. Jesus Christ is our home. He is our dwelling place. The psalmist said, O Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Do you have a home for your heart? Is there a place, a quiet, unflappable place in your life that you can turn to? I hope so. And I hope that this morning there will be some things that will help you to see that it is possible, even in the 1990s, to find that quiet place away from the noise and the confusion. And I want to tell you some examples, first of all, of holy people that I've known. I think I, can, I could name so many of them, and it's very hard to choose which one to tell you about, but I'll tell you about Mom Cunningham. She was my Canadian mom. When I went away to Bible school, after I'd graduated from college, I went way up to the bleak, barren prairies of Alberta, Canada, and I was feeling very much like a fish out of water and very lonely and very far from home in New Jersey. And one day there was a knock on the door, and here was this radiant face framed by white hair, she had pink cheeks, just a beautiful smile, twinkly eyes, and a wonderful Scottish accent. And she said to me, are you Betty Howard? And I said, yes, that's what I was back then. And she said, oh, Betty dear, you don't know me, but I know you and I've been praying for you for weeks. She said, I live just down the street. We have a little apartment, and then if, you have, if you'd ever like a cup of Scottish tea and a scone, just pop down to my little apartment, and we'll have a little talk and a cup of tea. Well, how long do you think it took this lonely Bible school girl to take advantage of that invitation? I did pop down there, not once, but many, many times during those bitter winter days. And she would always have the kettle boiling, and she would make us a pot of Scottish tea, and then she would get out of a tin can some Scottish scones. And she would read the Bible to me, and we would pray together, and I would cry on her shoulder. I was desperate in those days, thinking I was never going to get married, and the one man that I wanted to marry in the whole world, Jim Elliott, was never going to look at me twice. And he was 2,000 miles away. And so Mom Cunningham became a spiritual mother to me. Now, she was a holy woman. And she set for me an example. I don't remember much of what she said. I do remember that she almost always quoted to me Romans 15, 13. Um, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. And I'm sure that when she saw this girl, she thought, now there's a girl that needs more joy 
and more peace. And so she began to pray that. But years later, in the 1960s, when I was back in Bible school, I had been there in 1948 and 49, long before most of you were ever thought of. But in the 1960s, I went back, and she and I had both been widowed within the last few years. And we talked about what it was like to be widowed. And incidentally, I, my, the Lord did give me the answer to Mom Cunningham's prayers. I was married to Jim Elliott, who didn't last very long. 27 months of marriage, and it was 38 years ago today that he and four other American missionaries were speared to death in South America. But Mom Cunningham told me how when her husband died, she said, Oh, Betty dear, I thought of so many things that I should have done, and I thought of so many things I shouldn't have done. And I said, Lord, why didn't you help me? Why didn't you show me? And Betty, dear, the Lord looked at me with such love. And he said, because you weren't ready to be shown. I hope that everyone in this room is ready to be shown. I want to be ready to be shown from whatever source. And you know, God wants to teach us, sometimes from people we don't want to listen to. Quite often, the Lord has things to say to me through my husband, that nice man you met back there at the book table. He is the nicest man in the world, isn't he? Everybody, did. one lady came up to me just this morning. She said, he's a doll. <laughs> he is, but... I don't always agree with him, and I don't want to always hear what he has to say about what I'm doing wrong or what he thinks I ought to do or what he thinks we should do or we should not do. And the Lord reminds me, are you ready to be shown? This is my instrument. And I'm sure that if you think of those whose examples have showed you what holiness looks like, you will find that every single one of them has suffered because there will be no redemptive work done in the world without suffering. And it will also be somebody who is a sinner and who has failed. And Mom Cunningham was telling me about her failures. I found it very difficult to believe that she ever failed in anything. But I certainly can believe it now. I'm about the same age that she was back then. And I know that for all these years that I've had so many advantages, God is going to hold me responsible for so much that has been given. I still haven't learned it all. So I want to give you two specific helps for prayer for toward holiness. If you want to give a, if you want a title for my talk, it would be Helps to Holiness. And I've already given you one of those helps, which is examples, the example of holy people. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the first help is prayer. Now, this cannot be neglected if you want to be a holy woman. 
I don't care how many times you come to this church. I don't care how many times you sing these wonderful songs, and I want to say how wonderful it is to me to see real hymns being sung in a church like this where you have all this fancy music, the like of which we never had back in my day. We never had anything but an old tinkly piano or an organ. But I sat there this morning and I thought how things have changed so drastically. Here we are talking about holiness in the 90s. Holiness hasn't changed. These people up here were praising the Lord with different kinds of instruments. And I was particularly fascinated by the man who was so tremendously busy back there with all the percussion. I mean, he was just all over the place. But you know, it brought tears to my eyes because here we were singing this wonderful old hymn of the church, crown him with many crowns. And there's one verse left out of almost all the hymn books, and I presume it must have been left out of yours or it would have been up here. But it says, who every grief hath known that rings the human breast. And that word rings is like ringing a dish rag, W-R-I-N-G. Every grief hath known that rings the human breast and takes and bears them for his own, that all in him may rest. Isn't that wonderful? I can look over this room this morning. I don't see one person that I know. I know that my daughter is here someplace and my two of my granddaughters are here someplace. I don't see you. So I don't know one thing about the grief that might be wringing your human breast this morning. But he every grief hath known that rings the human breast and takes and bears them for his own, that all in him may rest. So all that by way of saying, it doesn't matter how many times you come to church, it doesn't matter how many songs you sing, it doesn't matter how much you read your Bible, if you don't pray. All of those things are necessary, and we can't talk about all of them. So we're going to talk particularly about that place of quietness where we find the core of things. I strongly urge you, women, and I know how hard it is. I know how hard it is. But I urge you with all my heart to get up early enough in the morning to have quiet time because it's only in those early morning hours that you can be pretty sure you're not going to be interrupted. Now, I'm not saying that this is the law of the Medes and the Persians or the law of Sinai, but I am saying that there's a lot of scriptural precedent. Jesus himself got up a great while before day. He was a very, very busy man, and he was demanded by many people for many things every day of his life that we know about. Those 30 quiet years were preparation. The psalmist said, early will I seek thee. And there are many places in scripture where we read of holy people seeking God in the morning. Put yourself in God's presence. Just be silent. And that is probably the hardest thing we ever do. Just shut up. And it says in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. And if that is the foundation of your day, if that is the first place after you wake up, 
that you commune with anybody or converse with anybody. It's going to make a difference with all the rest of the conversations. And it's going to make a difference in your kitchen, in your laundry, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood, in your marriage relationship. It's going to make a difference. Because there will be a, a joyful kind of calm about you. You will be able to bring peace into other people's lives. But you can't do that if you didn't receive it first. And so that time of prayer does not have to be a time when you talk the whole time. Just start with silence. Maybe you want to say when you kneel down in that quiet place, wherever it may be, and some of you might have to go and sit in the car in order to find a quiet place or take a walk or something. It might not be possible for you even to kneel, but you might want to start by just saying, Lord, here I am. I want to hear you. I'm ready to be shown. Now, most of us are not capable of generating very spiritual thoughts, are we? Most of us don't feel very pious when we open our Bibles or get down on our knees to pray. I don't. People ask me, do you, tell us about your, fan, your personal devotions. Do you, do you have your devotions when you feel the presence of God? Well, if I waited to feel the presence of God, it would be a long wait, probably, because I'd be doing a thousand other things. And I want, if, if I'm putting myself in God's presence, that's what he asks. He doesn't make his presence tangibly or visibly or audibly felt. To me, very often, if ever, I've never heard any voices. But just be quiet. And if you're not capable of generating spiritual thoughts, then if you're like me, you need some help in how to pray. And you know, one of the most wonderful ways that I know is using these old hymns. You've sung Crown Him With Many Crowns, which is a hymn of praise. It has nothing to do with all your list that you're bringing to God. You've got a long list of things that you have to pray about today. And oh, that impossible teenage son of mine and that awful woman we have on the committee down at the church and this neighbor who's encroaching on our property and those kids that are tormenting my poor little boy on his way home from school. You've got a lot of worries. You don't know what to do with your husband because he won't do this or that and he does do, it, do this and that that you don't think he ought to be doing. Who of us doesn't have a list of things to worry about? But you sing a hymn like crown him with many crowns and it just carries you up into the heavenlies. The lamb upon his throne, hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Lord Jesus, I wanna hail you. You are my king. Make me your subject. Show me, teach me. Do you feel scattered and restless? The minute I start to pray, my mind starts going here and there and the other place. I always have a piece of paper and a pencil in front of me while I pray because 
Satan would love to make me feel as though the whole thing is just useless because something comes to my mind that I know I'm going to forget as soon as I get off my knees. I'm not going to forget it if I write it down. So I write it down, and that's done with. I don't have to think about that again. And I have lists also of things to pray for, which are written down. The people that I have to pray for, I forget, so I have those written down. But someone has said what we need to do is to become purposeless and quiet. Not think about, now, Lord, I have to get an answer about this, and Lord, I, you, you've got to help me with this, and I want to be able to articulate something that you've given me from your word. These are purposes, and they're good purposes. But for a minute or two, try it for three minutes. Just no purpose, just adoration. And hymns are a great help to that. Another help is written prayers. Now, I grew up in a family and a church where we were very suspicious of anybody reading a prayer. We thought, if it's not spontaneous, God's not going to listen to it. But remember what Jesus said when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray? He gave us a very simple model. He said, when you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven. You know that prayer, I hope. If you don't, this is a good time to memorize it. But the older I get, the more I use that prayer. And the more aware I am of the fact that virtually everything that really matters is contained in that prayer. I'm not there to get an answer to every question or a solution to every problem, but to put my whole life and all the lives of those whom I love in the light of heaven. I put myself and my loved ones and all the situations which, may be, which I may be dreading today just in the presence of God. And you know, it begins to look different when you just be quiet about it and just say, Lord, you know all these things that are bothering me. I just lay them before you and don't even name them for a while. Just tell him because he knows. And whatever you do, don't be discouraged and irritated and frustrated with yourself. Just quietly say, Lord, I'm helpless. I can't do this. I can't do it right. But I do love you, and I want to be shown, and I want to offer myself and my life and all these concerns to you, Jesus, today. He'll hear you. He loves you with an everlasting love. And he knows better than you do the thoughts of your heart. He knows your thoughts before you think them. I find that a great encouragement. So don't be discouraged. We can learn. We can learn one thing at a time. And the Holy Spirit has been given us to teach us, and he will teach us if we're ready to be shown. Now, I came across this marvelous little exposition of the Lord's Prayer,
which I found very helpful, and I'm just going to read it to you. I cannot say our father if I live only for myself. I cannot say father if I do not endeavor to act each day as his child. I cannot say who art in heaven if I am laying up no treasures there. I cannot say hallowed be thy name if I am not striving for holiness because hallowed means holy, doesn't it? I have to put myself, in other words, in a position to cooperate by making the name of God holy in my life. The name of God is holy, of course. But why do I pray, hallowed be thy name, in order that I may participate in the making of his name holy? And that's what Mom Cunningham was doing. She was a holy woman demonstrating to me in ways of which she was totally unconscious what holiness in the 40s was like. I cannot say thy kingdom come if I am not doing all in my power to hasten that wonderful event. And how do I hasten the coming of the kingdom? By obedience. By simple, down-to-earth, humdrum, one foot at a time, day by day by day, obedience. And if you are reserving a little corner of your life and saying, Lord, I don't want you to mess with that. Can't I just have that one little area that I'm going to keep for myself? Do you have to go poking into every corner? And of course, the answer is, if you want to be holy, he has to poke into every corner, doesn't he? I cannot say thy will be done if I am disobedient to his word. If I am disobedient to his word, what am I saying? My will be done. There's only two choices. The rule of heaven is what? Thy will be done. And the rule of hell is my will be done. The route to hell is paved with I am my own. I am going to do my own thing. And nobody is going to tell me what to do. You're headed for hell. But if we pray thy will be done, then we have to be obedient to what he shows us. And he might show us something very unexpected and very unpleasant that we've been ignoring. And he says, what about here? You know, we get all sorts of wonderful ideas of great things we'd love to do for God. And God is asking us to do something humble and simple and down to earth. Something for which perhaps nobody will ever say thank you. Thy will be done. I cannot say on earth as it is in heaven if I will not serve him here and now. I cannot say give us this day our daily bread if I am dishonest 
or seeking for things in dishonest ways. I cannot say forgive us our debts if I harbor a grudge against somebody else. I cannot say lead us not into temptation if I deliberately put myself in the path of temptation. I couldn't tell you how many letters I have from women who have thrown away their virginity and they say, but I did pray that the Lord would keep me from temptation. And what did they do? They put themselves in the back seat of a car at some point or in some guy's bedroom or in a dark place with a man that they didn't have any reason to think they could trust. I cannot say deliver us from evil if I do not put on the whole armor of God. I cannot say thine is the kingdom if I do not give the king the loyalty due to him from a faithful subject. I cannot attribute to him the power if I fear what men may do. I cannot ascribe to him the glory if I'm seeking honor only for myself. And I cannot say forever if the horizon of my life is bounded completely by time. Now that's a big order, isn't it? But start praying the Lord's Prayer if you don't know what else to say. And if you can't generate spiritual thoughts, do exactly what Jesus said. Pray the Lord's Prayer. And you can find it in the book of Matthew, in the sixth chapter. So prayer is an absolutely essential ingredient if we are going to become holy women for God. Pray that God will make you that. Second thing is meditation. Now meditation means concentrating, thinking without distraction about, well, something in the Bible. That's what we're talking about here. You can meditate about almost anything, but we're talking about meditating on the things of God. And I don't know that there isn't any example in all of human history so shining and so radiant as the example of Mary. Mary did what Eve refused to do. Eve was saying, in effect, my will be done. And you remember that when the angel came to Mary to give her that astounding message that she was to become the mother of the Son of God, her answer was, I am your handmaid, let it happen, as you say. Anything you say, Lord, I'm yours. And I want to read a little bit of this beautiful story. Luke 1, verse 26, begins the story of God sending Gabriel to this woman who was engaged, and she was probably about 15 years old, we're told by historians. Her name was Mary, and he said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary said, since I am a virgin? Now notice, 
she's only asking a very simple question because she didn't understand. And very often God comes to us with things we don't understand. And so the angel explained that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her and the power of the Most High would be on her. And Mary's response was, I am the Lord's servant. And I hope that that is the response of everyone in this room this morning. Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, the Lord's servant. A servant has nothing to do on his own. A servant is totally at the disposal of the master. Here I am, what would you like me to do? The servant in those days belonged to the master. He was the property of the master. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. And so Mary has set for you and me the most perfect example of surrender. What do you want me to do, Lord? I'm ready. Ready to be shown. Ready to be your handmaiden. Worthy to be? Never. Capable of being? Never. Talented? Never. Has nothing to do with it. What God asks you and me to do is to put ourselves at his disposal without any reservation, without any holding back, without any, but Lord, this little area, this belongs to me. Please don't mess with it. Just imagine what Mary was facing. How in the world was she going to answer the questions, the rude questions of the people in the town who knew that she was not married? How was she ever going to explain to her parents that she had not been unfaithful? And what about Joseph? Can you imagine all these fears just suddenly attacking her? But her response was an instant trust and a total obedience. God, you'll have to take care of all the results. And don't ever forget this, ladies. Obedience is my job. The results of that obedience, the consequences of that obedience, belong entirely to God. Leave the results of your obedience in God's hands. So often, women talk to me about, well, I can't do so-and-so because this is what would happen. Is God asking you to do this thing? It's his business what will happen. Very often the question is one of that S word, submission. My husband's not a Christian. My husband doesn't love me as Christ loved the church, somebody says. How am I supposed to submit to my husband? If I did this, my children would go to hell. Do you think God hasn't thought about all the possibilities? Do you think he kind of slipped up and just didn't notice the fact that there are a whole lot of women married to men that aren't Christians or at least aren't acting like Christians? Didn't he think about that? Didn't he give us a, why, sh why shouldn't he have given us a footnote that says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands unless they're not being nice to you? In which case, almost all of us would be exempt some of the time, at least, and some of you most of the time. 
Well, meditate. If you just read a simple story like that, ask yourself, who is this girl? What happened? What did she say? What was her response? Is there an example here of a holy woman that I can follow? That's the kind of thing that comes out of meditation. Just stop and ask yourself a few questions like that. Now Mary, notice this, she did not understand. And God is much too big to be understood. As someone has said, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. If God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. It didn't matter that she didn't understand. What did she do? She trusted. She knew this messenger was from God. She trusted the word and she obeyed. Back to those two fundamental words. Holiness in the 90s means trust and obedience. Now right now, I'd like you to stop and think. Maybe it's a good idea to close your eyes and think, is there one area of obedience in which I have not been responding rightly to God? Think about it. Mary's surrender may be reenacted in each one of us. She is the example of a holy woman, just that little teenage girl, an example to all of us of surrender. And every word of truth that comes to us from God or from any other source, it's all God's truth, you know, everything that's true is God's, it demands a fresh receiving of Christ. Yes, Lord. I want Christ to live in me. That's what a holy woman is. One who bears the image of Christ. Mary literally bore Christ, didn't she? In her pregnancy, in her giving birth to that baby, she bore that child who was God. But God is giving to you and me the unspeakable privilege of doing the same thing. Paul says, Christ liveth in me. Christ will live in you if you receive him, if you trust him, if you obey him. Not I, but Christ liveth in me. Our time is just about up. Let me review again three things. We started out with examples. I gave you a 20th century example, Mom Cunningham. We have the first century example of Mary. Those are helps to holiness. Then there's prayer, putting yourself in the presence of God, silence, 
stillness. Try not to even budge. Try not to move for a while. See how hard that is sometimes. And then think, meditate. And ask the Lord to help you with the things that he has shown you in that period of meditation. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.